Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Sarah Castor-Perry. And first off, let's take a look at some of this week's top science news stories. Dave, what have you got there? Well, a quicker, cheaper way of making computer chips has been developed. Now, integrated circuits or silicon chips are now absolutely critical for every part of everyday life. And they're so cheap that it can actually make sense to put a computer inside a juggling ball. They're only cheap if they're made by the million. So most of the problems solved with them have to be done with general purpose processors. These are great, but they can be hundreds of times slower and less power efficient than a custom designed circuit because they've got huge amounts of circuitry there which just isn't being used most of the time. Um, you make a silicon chip by making a mask with a pattern on it, then you shine UV light through it, photographically transferring this pattern onto a layer of plastic over the silicon, then etching away some of the silicon where the plastic has been removed. Different materials are added onto the silicon and etched away up to about 30 times and you end up with a working computer chip. The problem is that these masks are incredibly expensive. A set of them can cost up to $3 million, which means if you only want a few hundred or a few thousand of a specific kind of chip, each chip is going to cost an absolute fortune. And also, if you make a mistake making this mask, it's an immense amount of money wasted. So it's very, very difficult for development. Um, one alternative to this process that's been existed for a while is to get rid of the mask completely and use an electron beam to write directly onto the plastic. This is very, very slow because it can be over a billion transistors on a modern chip. Now, engineers working for KLA10 Core have developed a system which, instead of using one beam, uses a million at once. They send a big wide beam of electrons at a special chip covered in special pixels, which can be programmed to be the transparency electrons or act as a mirror. And then they focus these reflected electron beams back onto the plastic over the silicon. They can then move this beam around and write onto the chip over 100 times faster than the previous method. But in the method you described first, you said they use ultraviolet, but now they're beaming electrons back on. So how does the electron actually write the signal into the chip? Well, essentially what it's writing onto is this layer of plastic. It's um, You dump a load of energy into this plastic, it alters the um, plastic chemically, and then it doesn't wash off. So then you have a pattern on the chip, you then etch away the bits which aren't covered in plastic, and you end up with a pattern inside the chip. Um, this is unlikely to compete with photolithography for large quantity production, but for research and specialist applications like the military, it could be very economic. So in other words, if you wanted to make a a small number of very specialised chips, you could do that at much lower cost using this particular technique. Yeah, more expensive than in huge bulk, but still far, far cheaper than at present. Dave, thank you very much. Well, also, uh, for sufferers of a heart condition that runs in families and can cause sudden cardiac death, especially amongst young people, there's a new technique to develop and explore new treatments and to explore the disease in detail. Now, the condition I'm referring to is called Long QT syndrome, or LQTS. It's quite rare, but it does afflict young people because it's a genetic condition that causes the heart muscle, and specifically cardiomyocytes, the cells that make up the heart muscle, not to reset themselves electrically after they beat, because when a heart cell beats, it gets electrically excited by letting some sodium come into the cell and it then resets itself by putting potassium back out of the cell. And in people who have this long QT syndrome, the cells don't reset themselves quickly enough 
and this can result in the heart going into abnormal rhythms and sometimes those rhythms can be sufficiently abnormal to trigger cardiac fibrillation or in some cases cardiac arrest and so people can just have sudden death and if it's identified early enough then it can be managed with drugs but actually studying it in the first place and working out which drugs are good and which are bad and when you build a new agent, finding out whether it can impact on the disease is very difficult because it's very hard to model a condition in a cell in a dish if you don't have a cell to work with. But now, researchers in Israel have come up with a possible solution. There's a paper by Ilanit Itzaki from the Institute of Technology in Israel that's literally just come out at 6 o'clock Sunday in Nature. What they have done is to take a lady who's got one form of long QT syndrome, take some skin cells called fibroblasts from this lady, they put them in the culture dish and then expose them to a virus which adds to those cells three special genes called SOX2, KLF4 and OCT4. And the action of those genes is to make those skin cells unspecialise and go back to becoming very primitive stem cells. So they become what are called iPSCs or induced pluripotential stem cells. And if you culture those cells in a special culture dish, then they turn into what are called embryoid bodies. And in other words, they start to produce all of the tissues you would begin to see in a very early embryo including heart cells, because when the researchers watched this happening down the microscope, they saw that some of the cells that were developing were beginning to beat autonomously, just like embryonic heart cells. And by identifying and isolating those cells and then studying them, what they found is that the cells display all of the electrical abnormalities that adult heart muscle cells do. They also respond chemically to drugs in exactly the same way as mature heart cells. And so they were able to test various agents, some of which we know work very well in long QT syndrome, and also some new agents that are being tested and explored for their potential to treat this condition as well. And as they say in their paper, the concept uh, described may also be extended to model several other human genetic disorders, enabling translational research into disease mechanisms and therapies. In other words, this is a very clever stem cell technique to produce cells that directly mimic the condition that an adult has so that in the dish you can explore, without having to make animal models or anything, the very cells that are affected by a disease and then explore whether or not there are drugs around or drugs that you're making actually work to combat that condition. That's an incredible piece of research because, I mean, obviously your heart is such an essential part going on there, but obviously there are issues with using animal models for this sort of thing. So with the improved improvements in stem cells, you know, it's a really exciting area of research. Well, the major benefit is that rats don't get long QT syndrome. And if you put the gene that we know goes wrong in the human into the rat, you don't know to what extent the differences you're seeing are just because that gene is abnormal or because it's interacting abnormally with other genes that it wouldn't normally be in a cell with. So by having the cell that's a human cell from the patient with the condition, you can then test how that person would respond to any drug you intend to use or an experimental agent before you've even gone near a person. You just have to do it all in a test tube, which is, as you say, incredibly powerful. Well, moving on from hearts to food now, the problem of how we might feed the Earth's growing population in the future has come under further scrutiny this week with the publication of Agrimonde, which is a book that is the summation of two years of work by two French institutions, INRA, the French National Institute of Agricultural Research, and CIRAD, which carries out agricultural research to help developing countries. Now, despite the study being carried out by two French institutions, the book has actually been published in English in order for the results to be more accessible on the world stage because the institutions thought it was important for the world to know what they'd found. 
I travelled to Paris for the launch of the study and I spoke to Patrick Caron from the Institute CIRAD about how even today we struggle to feed everyone on Earth. There is actually a very big problem. Of course, we are used to find food in the supermarket and we are, most of us, used to have uh, money in our pocket to buy this food. But that's not the case in all countries and that's not even the case in our own countries sometimes. We have to just to remember that one billion people in the world are suffering from what is just unacceptable. One death from malnutrition is one death which should not be accepted for ethic reasons. The human history was paved with this problem and starvation has been part of our history. But in the 70s we discovered a tremendous growth in human population at the world level. And it's the continued increase of this population growth predicted to reach 9 billion people by 2050 that's causing concern. Now, concern about feeding the growing population isn't new, but this is the first study to integrate looking at patterns of food production and consumption over the past 40 years with two possible scenarios for how we might proceed with providing the world with food in the future. The first scenario they called Agrimond 1. In this scenario, the world is characterised by sustainability, so a decrease in both undernourishment and overconsumption, ecological intensification of farming and security of trade. The second scenario, called Agrimond Geo, is the kind of business-as-usual scenario where food production increases year-on-year as it has done in the last 40 years, trade is liberal and little thought is given to environmental impact of feeding the world. Agrimond 1 would involve a lot of changes, not just with agriculture, but also our eating habits. The current world average daily calorie consumption is 3,000 kilocalories, but this is not evenly distributed. In some areas, people eat a lot more, like in Europe and the United States, and in some areas, people eat a lot less. The aim for the scenario Agrimond 1 is to have everyone eating 3,000 kilocalories a day, irrespective of where they live. And the way people consume and waste food is an area that Agrimon actually looked at in quite specific detail, and it's an area which will need to see a lot of changes, as Marion Guillot from the French National Institute for Agricultural Research explains. So the eating habits are very different in different parts of the world. Our European eating habits, for instance, of course it's not sustainable because first you have health questions, and then it's not sustainable if all the world begin to eat as we do, because then you have a pressure on production that will be tremendous. So what we did is we looked at a scheme of eating habits that is, of course, compatible with good health of all the people, that is to say 3,000 kilocalories. And then we looked at the fact, is it possible to feed the world with that kind of eating habits all around the world? And the question is yes, with some questions we have to work on. And given that the institutions INRA and CIRAD that carried out the study both carry out agronomic and agricultural research, this is one of the ways we could really innovate in the future. Genetic techniques could be used to increase yields either by genetic modification to produce pest-resistant or salt-tolerant varieties of wheat or corn or by marker-assisted selection, which is a way of making the old-fashioned method of plant crossing to produce new varieties with the characteristics you want, it makes it much more efficient. But producing these new varieties will not be the whole story. Francois Ouillet from the National Institute of Agricultural Research. 
I think if we consider the agricultural challenges that we face and, and we think to the different um, solutions that we may imagine, we need to consider the way we grow the crops. And by the way we grow the crops, of course, I, I think to nitrogen and the different uh, fertilizers that we use. Uh, I think also to the, the pesticides that we have to reduce. We also have to think to the rotation of the crops. We will need to combine different approaches, different disciplines, different techniques. So we need to adopt an integrated approach to increasing food production and we need to change our eating habits and stop wasting so much food. Not exactly an easy fix, but if we can manage these things, then the conclusion of the book was that, yes, we will be able to feed the world. And if you want to read a summary of the report, you can visit our website, thenakedscientist.com forward slash news, and follow the links. Sarah, thank you very much. Dave, let's move on to an exciting new form of metal. Not music either. (laughs) Indeed. um, A stronger metal alloy has been developed than ever before. Metals are wonderful materials. Um, they've revolutionised human life for thousands of years. Um, their, their structure is all crystalline, which means that atoms are arranged in repeating patterns over a relatively large scale. They're not nearly as strong or stiff as you'd expect from the bonds between the atoms. One of the reasons for this is that tiny defects in the crystals can move through the crystal relatively easily, allowing the crystal to deform at much lower forces than you'd expect otherwise. So that's why metals are sort of ductile. You can pull out a metal into a wire, for example. Yeah, especially things like copper are very, very ductile and you can hit them with a hammer and they bend rather than break. One way of making the metal stronger and harder is to change the metal structure to be more like that of glass with no large-scale repeating structure. You do it by taking some molten metal when the atoms are arranged pretty randomly, then you cool it very, very, very quickly. And especially if you've got a fairly complicated alloy with lots of different sized atoms, they won't crystallise and form a glass-like structure of metallic glass. These are very, very hard and wear-resistant and very efficiently elastic, so sometimes they're used for golf clubs. Um, but they're not especially tough. This means they can't absorb a lot of metal because they can't def- a lot of energy, so they can't deform, so they tend to crack and shatter, a bit like a conventional glass. Um, Marius D. Dementru and colleagues from the California Institute of Technology have managed to greatly increase their toughness by making metallic glass from a palladium alloy, um, which has made the alloy much better at deforming slightly under very, very large shear forces. So what does the, the addition of that palladium do to the metal to make it like that? It just means that they can rearrange their bonds slightly more easily. They can slide over each other slightly more easily than they would do otherwise. Um, which means if you've got a crack going into the material, instead of the crack carrying on growing, what happens is it kind of gets wider and flatter and it stops being so sharp, all the forces drop and everything stabilises. So what could you do with these sorts of metallic glasses? Why do we think they're helpful? Well, this one would have a better combination of strength and toughness than any other material produced. So if you can make it on a huge scale, it would be a wonderful thing to build buildings out of, build ships out of, whatever. There is, however, a minor problem. Palladium is much, much rarer than gold and costs about $16,000 per kilogram. So it's unlikely to be used for anything anything very large soon, but the group's working on possibly slightly cheaper alloys with similar properties in the future. Prove the point, in other words, and this is a, a way of saying you can do this, now we need to find something that will do the same job as the palladium but is more abundant so it doesn't cost as much. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Dave. Now, traditionally, the drummer in a band is there to set and to maintain the pace of the music, but if pre-recorded samples and backing tracks are included in a performance, instead, the drummer now needs to try and keep up with them. 
But now, a new computer programme which has been developed by musician and researcher Dr Andrew Robertson at Queen Mary University of London could hand control back to the drummer. And to tell us more, here is Jane Reck from the EPSRC. Like a lot of bands, Dr Andrew Robertson's group uses a mix of live performance with pre-recorded backing tracks and synthesizers. But Andrew's band is different because he's made it possible for the drummer to set the pace of the music. If the drummer wants things to speed up or slow down, everything else follows the pace they set. I designed a drum tracking system that's called Beekeeper to take in microphone input from the drums and to control sequences in terms of their tempo to stay in time, even though there are slight fluctuations in tempo. One analogy is if you're on a motorbike, you're on a motorway and you're trying to catch up with a car and that's ahead of you. What you have to do on the motorbike is accelerate. Then as you're approaching the car, you need to actually go off a bit and sort of slightly slow down from the speed you are so that you're exactly the same speed as the car and you're at the same side of the car. You're looking, you know, you look to your right, there's the driver's seat. So you're trying to be at the same speed and actually at the right place as well. So there's no point being at the right speed and being half a beat ahead of the car. I see the drummer as the car. He's kind of just cruising along and the system is effectively more of the motorbike because it actually has the ability to zoom up and catch up or put on the brake and, and, and slow down slightly. So I've made that system for music. Andrew is a researcher at Queen Mary, University of London. He says it's the first software of its type for drummers. The drums are linked up to the computer software by microphones. We just pop a mic in the kick and one in the snare, put it out to this computer. This is analysed for something called onset detection. So when they hit that drum, you get an event and it's sent to you as a bang or it's a hit. So it's analysing a sequence of events. This is done relative to a click track that the sequence is using. The computer uses its metronome, it's got its own idea of bars and beats of what it's doing. So you send out, on the one hand, the computer's click, and on the other, the kick and the snare from the drummer. The software is making the best adjustment to align the two. So the best adjustment in tempo, so you're at the same speed and the same exact place as the drummer. It's also got a nice count-in where you can count in with the sticks and that initialises it ready to go. This is the drummer playing live with backing from a synthesised bass line. As the music progresses, a robotic xylophone is also brought in. The software controls the speed of the bass line and the xylophone to keep up with the drummer. You'll hear different parts from this track so that by the end of the piece, when the drummer has gradually built up to a much quicker speed, you'll be able to hear a real difference in the tempo with everything following the lead of the drummer. So the music goes from this to this. And finally, to this. Drummer David Nock says the software makes a big difference to a performance. It's something that I can interact with, so... It's a computer, it responds to me like another musician. I interact with it as I do with the bassist and the keyboardist and the singer. In a live situation, if the audience is enjoying it and I'm enjoying myself, 
and there's a buzz going on, I can go there, I can speed up, I might find that this chorus, I really want to kind of give it a bit of extra energy, and I know the machine's there. I go for it, it listens, and away we go, you know. Andrew's work is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and the Royal Academy of Engineering. So it's UK-funded research that's helping to keep this country ahead of the game in the music industry. Nowadays, a lot of musicians make more money from live performances than music sales. So Andrew says it's vital that these musicians are able to offer more spontaneity in their performances to keep people coming back for more. It's very difficult for musicians to actually sell hard copies of their records so they don't see the kind of revenue they used to see when they had the vinyl and cd sales actually it's in the live arena that a lot of things are happening given that when you look at the bands out there that are exciting a lot of them are using technology they're bringing technology into the shows if bands take this up and start using it i think they benefit from it you can find out more about the software at b-keeper.org and Andrew's band is called Higamos Hogamos. What a fantastic invention. That was Jane Reck from the EPSRC, and she was talking to Dr Andrew Roberts from Queen Mary, University of London. And if you'd like to catch up on anything we've covered so far this week, the references and the transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news the naked scientist news flash reacting to the world's best science for more information look us up online at nakedscientists.com